0: You. Small doses. Self-help yes. from the hip. Small doses. Yes. We're talking that shit. Small doses. Yes. And keeping it real. Small doses. Yes. With me and Anna Seals. It's so funky. <laughs> so funky. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Small Doses, the quarantine edition. <laughs> um, today we have... Somebody who I feel like has always been such a, uh, so just a direct voice, uh, especially in particularly in the journalistic space, advocating for blackness, advocating for advocating against injustice, advocating for women, and you know I really feel like there's this like very strong line that's somehow been drawn between like the journalist space and then like everyone else. Like it really bothers me because I feel like once upon a time, everybody watched the news and now it's like folks watch Shade Room or they watch blogs or, you know, and they kind of like consider that like I've gotten the news. But no, people like Ms. Joy Reed <laughs> are out here um giving us... Not just the news, but information on a regular basis and making it their business, making it her business to step into spaces where oftentimes we see the news ignore us. And when I say us, I mean particularly Black folks. So first of all, I want to welcome you to the show. Applause. Hey, girl. Applause, How applause. you doing? I just want you to know, and I, I had texted Joanne about, my mother was like, well, you know Joanna's is Guyanese. <laughs> And we know you're people from Grenada. We know. (laughs) Exactly. And my mother was like, well, you know, I really, Guyanese women, I really love Guyanese women because once, once they take you in, they don't ever let you go. That's right. (laughs) You're you're like a Guyanese woman. If you date the brother (laughs) or you marry the the cousin, whatever, you're you're part of the family
1: (laughs) for life. So And getting um, food. Every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, getting food. Getting fruit cake, black food cake. cake uh-huh. black cake. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: definitely wanted to shout you out on a Carib Caricom yes. Um, connection. Yes. But, you know, we participated in uh, something that Angela Rye put together called Black Women Speak. And it was the first time that you and I ever got to interact. And I've always been a fan of your, of your work and, and the way you. that you have inhabited your space. And on that, uh, we, we were talking about a number of different things in regards to COVID-19 and this, all of this that, you know, we haven't seen addressed in the mainstream media space. And I wanted to do my part in using my platform to fill in some of those spaces, right? Because I know a lot of my viewers and listeners, they are watching the MSNBCs, they're watching the CNNs, you know? They are tuned in in that way. But to your point, even on those places, they're not addressing things that are incredibly uh, affecting our community. So I wanted to take today to just give you a platform uh, to address the things that you feel like are hitting the cutting room floor.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me here, uh, Amanda. I'm a big fan as well, and all the different ways that you are able to project yourself um, into so many different audiences. Because, as you know, for us, you know, we don't see ourselves in that many spaces, right? And so, whether you're doing series, um, which is important to see ourselves reflected in, or doing daytime TV, which is also important to see ourselves in, um, whether you're doing Comedy Girl, whatever you're doing, I love the fact that you represent. You always represent. I was, I literally <laughs> read it. Into a YouTube where the whole YouTube was about Amanda's face. What well, people be saying stuff. It's just her. It's just just look at the the, the response that she gives you with the, the visual response. It's so fabulous because you let us know how you feel about everything at all times, and I love it. So, um, thank you so much for just doing what you do because what you do is so important. But I will say that um, the, the the way in which I'm sure you can recognize this, just working in the in the fields where you work, is that we te- typically are not the majority, even close to the majority in the spaces where we work. We're often talent. You see us on the front side of the camera, but when you go behind the scenes, when you talk about crew, although I have to say my crew uh, at 30 Rock and uh, both in DC and at 30 Rock are very diverse, surprisingly diverse. Um, but generally you've got the crew that's less diverse and then it gets even less diverse when you get to management And when you get up to management, we get fewer and fewer and fewer And so since there are fewer of us in the room making the you know The initial decisions about what to cover and how to cover it We have to fight on the front end to make sure that we are seen that are that the look on our face is visible on camera Before that even right. happens. We have to get hired. We have to get cast in these jobs We have to have producers and writers that look like us We have to try to force our way into these these rooms, you know. And so I'm very blessed that, you know, I inherited initially Melissa Harris Perry's team. And so that team was already diverse. Right. When I took over that spot, Melissa's team was already in place. And so some people have come and gone and have gone on to bigger and better careers. But we've always been very intentional on my team about hiring a very diverse staff. So I look around me in my little space, and I see us, right? Um, but walking around in the bigger picture of our industry, we're not so prevalent. So I think that's one thing that's important to say that you know it's a, for us to be here, for you and myself, to for us to even be here with these platforms means that that people have pushed for us to have this opportunity, um, and that that opportunity has been presented to us, and it's such a blessing. So that's one thing I'll say. When it comes to COVID nineteen, you know, when we first heard about it, it was just kind of this general plague that we knew was happening in, in Wuhan and in China, that we knew could come here, that Trump was playing down as being, oh, don't worry about it. 15 people will get it. Then it'll go away. It'll be fine. And then all of a sudden it went from that to like Armageddon almost immediately. And as this, the numbers of people who died increased, some of us did start to notice that a lot of those deaths were in cities that have a lot of black folk in them. in big cities, uh, in New York, in places like Chicago, in places like Detroit. And then as we looked even closer, we're like, wait a minute, even in the South, other places, there's a lot of Black victims here. And then after a while, we started to get the data that show that it's not just our perception, you know, because uh, I don't know if you remember before Idris Elba got it, Black folk were like, oh, we can't get that. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> like, and then the Blackest Black man got it. We were like, dang. It got yeah. Idris?
1: The Rona got Idris? And we were like, Oh my it, it was a dumb woman." You know what I'm saying? Like,
0: it was, it was
1: Idris. Like, uh, like ah, ah. You know, it's like all of our British husband has it? What? Right. You know. No. So that's not possible. So then we realized, oh, wait a minute. This can get us. Well, we, um, Black people, are contracting COVID-19 and also dying after contracting yeah. COVID-19 at astronomical rates. So, for instance, if we're 14% of a population, we'll be 40 or 50% of the deaths. And it's that start. It's places where we're 7% of the population, but 35% of the deaths. It's extremely, it's like magnify the number of people who get it by three or four, and that's how many of our folks are getting it and dying. And there's a lot that goes into that as we're seeing the epidemiologists really, you know, sort of explain why that is. One factor is we don't have healthcare as often. We don't have ac- healthcare in the first place. Right. So we're coming in with pre-existing conditions that are right. untreated. So we'll have asthma already. We'll already have high blood pressure and diabetes. And if you have those pre-existing conditions, you're more likely to die if you get it. So that's one factor. Um, another factor is um, that even you know, not, not having health insurance, not having access to health care, having preexisting conditions, also the jobs that we tend to do. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the working class in our industry, it's often white working class. That's who we talk about. When you say working class, a lot of white journalists mean white people, but we coal are miners <laughs> and coal miners, you know, you know truckers, steel and workers, Exactly. Yeah. But they're not really talking about us, but we are the majority. The working class is mostly brown and black. Yeah. And so we wor- tend to work in jobs where we can't do what you and I are doing work from home. We can't do it. We are meat packers. We are people who work in Amazon warehouses, not in the suites, yeah. but actually moving the stuff around. The postal service is overwhelmingly, you know, black, it's blacker than their national population. Um, so we're working in jobs where you know, UPS drivers, we're the frontline workers, we are cashiers, um, stockroom people. Yep. So we got to go to work. So we're yeah. catching it because we're around other people. And we work in places where we can't not be close to other people. So all of these factors are, are, are causing us to be victims more than the average population.
0: So, Just so let's put a pin in that, and can you give my my for those for those who don't know where you what space you inhabit as a journalist? Because you've been in this game for a minute, (laughs) and you know I remember first learning about your work with your MSNBC show. But I wanted to just get some backstory into how you got to this space and the reason why is because. Everybody, I feel like, thinks that they can just tack on the term journalist and the label journalist very willy nilly these days. Um, But they lack a certain level of experience, of ethics, et cetera. And so I just wanted to, you know, give the audience some frame of context about what makes you unique in that space.
1: Well, so basically, um, I can just say I was born in Brooklyn, New York um, at two years old. Uh, my sister and I, my mom, we moved to Denver, Colorado. My father is from the was from the Congo. My mother uh, was Guides, as we discussed. They, got, they met actually in Iowa somehow, because that's where they both ended up in college. Because, you know, you come from overseas, you're looking for bargain, you're looking for price. And so the cheap place where they could go to college, there was Iowa. So they ended up in Iowa. That's Iowa. where they met. That's where my sister was born. When I
0: went to Iowa for the first time, yeah, I went for a scholarship, and the the chaperone, like a scholarship competition, the chaperone pulled up and he opened the minivan door, and like I would say, six out of nine of us were black, and he <laughs> looked at us and went, "Well, y'all are the first coloreds I've ever seen." Yet. Oh no. no, he didn't. And we were
1: like, "We about to get in the car with
0: this <laughs> man." Yeah. So that's my Iowa. Like. Yeah.
1: No, it's crazy. My, my, when my father went there, my mother came to this country um, in 1960. And I think my father came around the same time. And, you know, back in the 60s when the Congo was liberated from the Belgians, what the new government originally did was they said, okay, let's take, you know, all the chief and the high level people, kids, sons, and send their sons around the world to go get an education. And at the time, the Kennedy administration was fighting to get those People to come here because their attitude was if this is going to be a liberated country We want it to be pro-american not pro-russian because russia was also really pitching hard No come to moscow and go be educated there So my father was in that group of men including barack obama's dad a lot of these people They sent their sons the chiefs and the, the high men would send their sons to america To get educated with the idea they'd come back and then be in the government So that's how my father got over here. He came not that long after Obama came here. Um, And so when he got to Iowa, it wasn't just one or two colors. It was a whole lot of Africans. I've wow. looked at yearbooks from back then and it's all these African men sitting around with all these white men. So these guys came here knowing nothing about the idea of segregation. They were like, they don't, what's that about? They, right. you know, it was a whole new experience to come here. And for my mother as well, she had actually gone to school in England first and she'd gone to London University. Well, of course. Of course, to be a teacher. <laughs> you know, so she of went to- Of course,
0: she was either going to be a teacher or a nurse. Or a nurse. <laughs> you, know, my, you
1: know, my aunt is a nurse. <laughs> you know my mother's a nurse. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yeah of course. Yeah. So my auntie is a nurse they're the only two girls in her family so one teacher one teacher one nurse so she came to uh to finish her education as a teacher in 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 uh, Iowa so that's where we're My sister was born, then they moved to New York. Then they, uh, at some point, got married, because I don't think they were married at first. It's a whole long mystery because, you know, they don't talk about these things. Right, right, um, right. They don't talk about it. So then, eventually, they ended up in Denver, and that's where my brother was born, and that's where we grew up. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Originally, of course, being a West Indian child, I was going to be a doctor. My sister was going to be a lawyer, and the brother, an architect, of course. None of us are any of those things. (laughs) So, So eventually, what happened is, very long story short, I wound up getting into Harvard University. Once I got in, my mother was like, you have to go. So I went. So I went. Um, my mom, unfortunately, passed away. So that threw off my whole idea of being in medicine. I just didn't believe in it anymore. I didn't trust it. I didn't want anything to do with walking in hospitals or anything. So that just, I threw, yeah. it threw me completely off. So I wound up taking a year off. I went to New York. And I really had to start thinking about, well, what do I want to be if I'm not a doctor? Because my whole life, I've said I want to be a doctor. And you know, as a West Indian kid, when you say that, that's what you're going to be. Yes. You know, your family doesn't really have options for you at that point, no, you know? They're like, great. I'm glad you know. <laughs> you checked off the box, right? And yes. so I didn't really have a plan B. So what, long story short, what wound up happening was eventually once I graduated, I bopped around doing consulting and doing some other stuff once I got my degree and I wound up thinking, you know what? I, we, my husband and I, you know, we, I got pregnant. I got pregnant a second time. We moved to Florida. And I was like, this is my chance to start over. I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be in management consulting. I need to do something different. So I tapped into what I always loved growing up. I was the news junkie from sixth grade on. Um, not to age myself, but when the hostage crisis happened, I was in the sixth grade, I was obsessed with it. I watched the, the show, which eventually became Nightline, every night. And my mother, and you know how West City mothers are strict. I was supposed to be in bed by, by eight, but she would let me stay up and watch it because I was so fascinated by it. Right. And I was obsessed with the news and politics. And so I said, let me Do you remember into- what
0: fascinated
1: you? You know what? It was the idea that, that all these people got kidnapped and they were trapped. And it was a nightly, you know, every night it was a countdown show. And they would tell you how many days these people had been trapped. This thing went on for all, like a year. And these people were trapped in Iran. They couldn't get out. The Carter administration couldn't figure out how to get them out. It was this constant saga. And to me, it was a fascinating drama, you know? So hmm. I just, I, I, when I, once I had to make a career decision, I was like, let me tap back into the thing that I always loved, which is news. I always watched it. I was always a, you know, nerdy news kid. So I, I ended up taking a job. Now, the thing about, it, I had worked in management consulting. So I'd had a good job with like good money. But I got to Florida and I took a job for $7.25 an hour writing for the morning show at the Fox affiliate in Miami, big step down. But honey, when I tell you, it was, I was like, a what do you call it? Like a kid in a candy store. Cause I had all the news in front of me in this thing called iNews where I could tap in and see all the news. And I love this job. I ended up working at the NBC affiliate, moving to the NBC affiliate as a, as a digital one, you know, when they were just trying to get digital going. Um, so that was my job. So I ended up just doing what I love to do originally. How old would you say you were around this time? So by the time that I moved into the news world, I was, um, cause I, had, I had not, I had had my third child yet. I think I'd had my third child yet. So I was probably in my 30, 31. I w- I started over. I, I really started a whole new career. The reason at like why I, I
0: had a feeling because that's your Saturn return. You know, in astrology, You go through a Saturn return at 28, 28, 29, which is basically like, it's the first, uh, Saturn takes 30 years to rotate, to to orbit the sun. And so we go through every 30 years, they say we go through this shift into another space of adulthood and it's when everyone transitions. So it's like we, we make up these like finite plans about the career we're going to have at 18. Yeah. And then around 28, 10 years later, 28, 29, you're like... I don't really know if I, you know, your friends, you look at your friends, you're like, I don't know if I really rock with you like that, you know? And so I did the same thing where I was like obsessed with hip hop and music and this is what I'm going to be in and this is my life. And then around 28, 29, it was just like, this this doesn't necessarily feel the same way. I feel like I want to use my voice for something that has more magnitude. I want to be able to be taken seriously, et cetera. Yeah, and then I started transitioning into the comedy space. But it, oddly enough, my master's in African American studies has become more useful in the comedy <laughs> space is. than ever. But yeah. I wanted to hear about that journey because also I think a lot of folks kind of think that if you didn't go to journalism school, that you can't be a journalist, right? But but it's not to say that if you didn't go to journalists. You can't be a journalist, and that you should just be able to just say, I'm a journalist today. Right. But I do think there's something to be said for like, you started at the bottom. Yes. And you worked your way up. And it's like, you can't skip steps, you can nope. speed them up. Yep. Yep. In that process, how did you find your way to being front and center? On your own platform and being able to be an advocate, not just, you know, in a newsroom and having to push stories, but being yeah. the one who's saying these are the stories.
1: Well, so and, and this is a, a part of that story. And I'm glad that you, you, you said that, because the thing is about transitioning your life. Right. Is all about it's all about being willing to take risks. And being a risk taker, you know, my mother was a huge risk taker. I mean, moving from Guyana to England by herself, moving to America alone, leaving my father and moving across the country by herself. You know, this is the things that she was an adventure person, right? We would do road trips all over the country in our, in our Jeep, in our, not Jeep, in our um, station wagon back when those existed. You know, I mean, we were, my, my mother was an adventurous person. So I inherited that from her and being a risk taker. So, the way that I was able to transition from being a morning show writer, writing for these anchors who would come in and misread my shit every time, I would have it all written perfectly. And I used to write the kickers that were like the funny ending, you know, and they would mess it up because they weren't rehearsing it. They just would read it wrong. So, I'm like, I, you know, it's frustrating being a There's writer. There's a rhythm sometimes. here. There's a rhythm. <laughs> yeah. That was supposed to be the punchline. What are you <laughs> doing? You know, so I went from that job to writing in the digital space where I was getting to choose what the digital side of NBS of the, my local would have on. So I was picking the stories to put on, you know, the digital world. And then it got to be 2001, um, 9-11 happened. Um, I'm sitting in the newsroom. Well, I wasn't actually in the newsroom. I actually got called into work after 9-11. I'm in Florida now at this point. We're in Miami. And it was, it was, you know, obviously for everybody, this was kind of the world change. And then we went from that to invading Iraq. And as I'm in this new space, doing my own sort of research, looking into what in the hell are we doing going into Iraq? What the hell right. does that have to do with 9-11? I saw no connection. My, I because decided, there was uh, none. Because there was no connection. And I, there was a guy who I worked with named Ike Siemens. This is one good lesson for young folks is get yourself a mentor. Ike Siemens was this craggly old white dude. He had to be like 60. He looked 80, but he was probably like 60. And he connected me with a guy who was the first black editor of the Miami Times editorial division. And he said, you should, because he's like, you are so constantly wound up about politics, about the war, about all these issues. You should write a column. He connected us together. I get to write this column. My very first column, the editors choose the title. We don't choose the title when you write a column. I wrote this column and they titled it Against a Senseless War. And I damn near got fired. I got read the riot act by my supervisor that I'm not supposed to be writing my opinion. I'm not supposed Mm -hmm. to be giving my opinion out. They were enraged, but they couldn't fire me because it would have looked really bad. Um, And eventually I decided that I didn't want to work in an environment where people tell me what to say. So I quit. I quit the job, um, took a chance. I took this training called Wellstone Action Training, which was named after um, uh, John Wellstone, who his first name was, um, you know, sort of very liberal's, Senator. um, And I took this training and I wound up working in 2004 on the anti Bush campaign called America's Coming Together. I took a job as a press secretary. So again, throttled my salary, (laughs) went and took a job to go try to get Bush out. And I worked on that campaign really for about three quarters of it, believed we could win and that Kerry could win. And then saw that Swift thing happen and realized that man was going to lose. Right, and in the process of watching him lose, I realized, you know, the other my other obsession, politics, is so important, and being able to speak the truth in politics is so important. So after he lost, I wound up um, through another connection, through my mentor James T, who was a big time radio guy in Miami. He put me on as his producer for a radio show. I became his side producer, but sometimes I would chime in. I did my own little read report, which was my little you know, section of what's happening in the news, what's happening right. in the news and politics. And then from there, I wound up ho- co-hosting the show with him. And then uh, Barack Obama runs for president because I knew a lot of people from my old campaign. They hired me toward the end of the campaign to come back and be a press secretary again, because Miss Kathy Hughes had sold our station right in October, uh, right before the Iowa caucuses, because they, I think in a corporate world, didn't believe Obama had a shot. So we Mm. were no longer had a radio show. So I went and worked on the Obama campaign. And when you win, opportunities flow. So I started getting barred on as a pundit. Uh, People wanted my opinion all of a sudden because Obama won. And that's kind of, it went from there. Listen,
0: they say luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. Like yes. it just feels like you you're risk taking. It's almost as if you've lowered the um what do they call it in, in insurance? Like <laughs> the premium. <laughs> the pre- like because you've made it to where even when you're taking a risk, it's like an educated risk. Like it's not just like fly yeah. by the seat of my pants. Like right. Because every space that you're in, it feels like you're really digging your heels in and that it's driven not just by getting the dollar yes. or by getting fame. It's mm-hmm. driven by something that has a more um value-based foundation.
1: A hundred percent. And I mean, if you think about <clears throat> like, you know, for me in politics and you know, I'm not one who's a party person necessarily. I've been a Democrat my whole life, um, but I am probably the more critical of the Democratic Party in a lot of ways because I know what the Republicans are supposed to be. Working on that that race in 2004, this wasn't, for me, about John Kerry. You know, I wasn't on his campaign. I was on his side campaign, America Coming Together, but we were watching that campaign happen. I'm thinking, wait a minute, my community, Black folks, there are certain things we need, man, you know, and we need stuff that you don't need. You are a rich guy with a rich wife, with opportunity. And if Bush wins again, it's not really going to hurt you. It's going to hurt us. You know, we all saw what happened in Hurricane Katrina. Rich folks that voted for Bush, they weren't hurt by what he did. People, rich people don't go on the front lines to fight a war in Iraq. It's broke people, it's poor people. It's needy people who join the military or people who need to bring and get their lives together. My brother um, at one point joined the Army National Guard because he needed to get his life together. You know, people don't join the military because they are already privileged. You know, a lot of times they join it for a job and healthcare. And so the idea that you could reelect a president who did that to Americans, who allowed all these people to die, and it's disproportionately, again, black folks who died because we disproportionately joined the military. When happened, let Katrina happen. This is stuff that's important, you know? And so as I've been a pundit, I've never tried to shade my own, hide my own personal opinion. You know, I, I am a pundit who would give you my opinion because I think, I, I, I don't, And I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think I speak for a certain number of people who have who've gone through and been raised the way I was raised. And, you know, I've always tried to live in a community that is that has got Black folks in it, where I'm seeing and talking to and interacting with our folks, with our people. And so, you know, getting the pundit opportunity to come back to MSNBC, to, you know, be on Alex Witt's show. I used to be and company in dancing and company. I was part of the and company, you know, be a bunch of us who would be on with her. Yes. You know, and so, you know, and when Obama won, we were like valued in a sense as the voices of, you know, black. What do black people think about politics? Look, a black man is president. Get some blacks. (laughs) Where are blacks? (laughs) Are there blacks who can talk about this? So I kind of got lucky. Right. Um, And now that, you know, Tamron Hall, when Tamron Hall got the opportunity to go to the Today Show, because, you know, people who care about folks that uh, about in their community are a blessing. Tamron was very much pushing for me to get her hour when she went to the today show. And so she went to today. I got her hour as a dayside yeah. show. I eventually got canceled, which now I know I'm a, i am fear nothing now, girl, cause I got canceled. And once they cancel you, they can't they can't fear, you know, you can't make you afraid anymore. That's the worst thing that can happen in a show. I got canceled. Um, when I went you, back.
0: Did you see it coming?
1: Um, Kind of because yes, kind of because you know it was a, it was a difficult time to be doing the show I wanted to do initially, which was a very editorial show, and then all these things started happening like planes disappearing, and that's what we were then supposed to talk about, Malaysia. and that's not my thing. You know, I talk about planes this so way, I feel horrible for the people who are missing, but I'm not that person that's going to do weather and planes disappearing very well. <laughs> you know, it's not my thing. So I wasn't surprised. That Welcome we got to cancer. me on the real. <laughs> ma'am.
0: Sometimes, sometimes I'm just like this, this, this topic ain't my thing. And that's when you see my face (laughs) because, and it's not like you're trying to, it's not like you don't have compassion. It's not like you don't have, you know, excitement. You're just like, this ain't my bag, you know? And if you, if you're an even vaguely humble
1: person, (laughs) you're able to be like, this ain't my bag. Like, (laughs) Can I just say that yeah, basically you are me on that show? Because you 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 channel what I think. Because I when I'm trying to do like a weather story, that's my face. My face is just ain't really my thing. I mean, if I know they want it's me snowing. I'm talking about
0: this weather. i am talk, I'm talking about the weather, right? I'ma now.
1: do it, but I, it snows in Boston. I don't know what to tell y'all. <laughs> and y'all knew it was gonna snow again, because it snowed last year in Boston. Every year. I, so you trying to make you want me to look happy? So I wasn't shocked when they were like, Why, wow, this girl don't enjoy this. <laughs> so like, here's my <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> when you got the show, was it that you were fitting, you were fitting into Tamron's hour? So basically you were taking over the format that they had already designated for Tam.
1: Kind of. Yes. Yes. Pretty much. Yes. Um, I got a different team. They set up and each show kind of is supposed to fit the anchor. And I think that her show, when, when she was doing the show, it really fit her and it highlighted the best of who she is. Um, my show started out like that and it was highlighting who I am Great. until these, you know, that, I don't know if you remember, remember the, pl- the plane that disappeared that they've never found. Malaysia. The Malaysia play, And that just took over the world. Every That was everything. Yes. CNN did it 24-7, and so we did it 24-7. Competitively, I get that management was like, we gotta do it too. But it took the show in a very different direction from what had been a show kind of built for me to being a show that was more built for the cycle, for the news cycle. And then as the news cycle moved in and out, some things I was really interested in. The Arab Spring, I was very proud to be able to cover that because I that's something I'm actually fascinated by. Yes. Um, When Nelson Mandela died, I was anchoring, you know, part of that coverage. Some of my family found out Mandela died from me, which is I'm super proud of to have just been in any way part of that. So there were some stories where I was very invested, but because the way the business changed because of that Malaysia flight, it changed the business. And so that show was no longer really a show that was built for me. It was built for the news cycle. You know what I mean? So that's fine. Um, meanwhile, my friend, Melissa Harris Perry had a show that was built very much for her. Yes. right. I mean, I said I sat in on the first reading for that show and it was such a brilliant show. I was so obsessed with it. It was like, it was like a wonderful class. You could take at at a, at a great school. You know what I mean? Where you're just auditing it and watching. It was brilliant. Um, and then when she left the network, which, It was devastating for a lot of us. I was devastated that she left the network. When she left the network, she really was an advocate for me to take her hour. So I've kind of, it's a weird kind of position to be in that I've ended up in two different hours of friends of mine who- um, How? Huh? (laughs) Huh? You know how? Because you're not an asshole.
0: That's how that happens. People wonder. People talk so much shit about me, but I'm like, how you think I'm still here? Because I'm not an asshole. Because there there's always go. someone advocating that's saying like, joy. No, we need joy. We need joy. We yeah. need joy. As black yeah. women, we are our we are our saviors.
1: Yes. We are. We are, And the right allies are so important because let me tell you, my advocates and allies in that building, Tamron Hall, Melissa Harris Perry, but also Chris Matthews, who's been like the godfather of my career in that building. Um, You know, people like Martin Bashir, who was a huge advocate, not just for me, but for Black women throughout MSNBC and fought for us. Like, for us. You know, people like that who really have stood up. Lawrence O'Donnell, who is a true friend, who's a real ally, who went, he went all out for my book. Like, he really did when my book came out. I mean, these are the kind of people who, you know, in this business, it makes you glad to be in it. And like you said, if you're not an asshole, you can actually have those kind of allies that will be there for you and that will make your life better. So I think it's important. So when I took over this show, I felt a huge sense of responsibility, just being on the same time as Melissa. Um, and the, the the levels that she took it to, and so we keep it. There's a few things we need to do: diverse people. You're gonna see on TV that you always gonna see us. You're gonna see a room that looks like America. We see Latinos. You're gonna see AAPI folks. You're gonna see Black folks. You're gonna see women, and not just when you talk about women's issues. We're not just gonna have Blacks when you talk about Black issues. Yeah. You're gonna see us. Yeah. You know, know, you're going to see the pandemic through our eyes. You're going to see us. And I think that's important. So I I take that as a rule for myself and for the team.
0: So to speak directly to that, I would love for you to share with us just some points of interest, some topics that you feel like haven't been able to really get expounded upon uh, that are specifically related to black folks and COVID-19. I mean, you spoke earlier in the show about how We are, of course, in greater numbers, getting infected and passing away because of these specific things that you've laid out. But I would love to hear about if there's any other topics that you feel like are getting put on the cutting room floor or that are getting brushed under the rug.
1: Well, I think one of them, you know, we both talked about it. Your mom's profession, my auntie's profession. When we see these nurses that are being highlighted, you and I both know that when you go to the hospital, most of them nurses are are Caribbean women. There's a whole
0: Haitian sensation on any hospital floor.
1: Yes, there really truly is and so I think we, we're not we're, we're not digging in enough to and that also puts more that's one of the reasons more black and brown people are dying but particularly more black people are dying because we overrepresent in the fields like nursing um, as EMS people we're overrepresenting in those we just did a story this weekend about a five-year-old who died in Michigan in Detroit both her parents, are EMS workers. They're both first responders and their daughter, because they're exposed to it day and night, the daughter got exposed to it and died. The youngest person to die in uh, in the state of Michigan, five years old, a little girl. Now her parents are devastated, but they still have to go to work every day and try to save other people's lives. I think the stories about immigrants related to that, think about it. This is an administration, the, the Trump administration, that's trying to eradicate immigration and get rid of immigrants, deport people, throw people out. Well, who is that? Who are those people? They're not all brown people. They're also Black people, Caribbean people, people for whom he has taken away the protective um, funding that we had given to companies, where we had, you know, status for com- for countries like Haiti, where people don't have to be sent back because Haiti is still in a crisis. So mm-hmm. immigration is con- is directly connected to this crisis. If we are throwing out immigrants and not letting people get visas, we're going to lose huge percentages of our doctors a lot of whom are Southeast Asian, Uh, we're gonna lose huge percentages of our nurses. So we should be watching immigration more. Um, I think on the financial end, we tried to do it, we've tried to do it on the show, but I think there's not enough being talked about about businesses. Immigrants and um, people of color, we start more businesses than the majority. Yet our businesses are not getting that money. That money, those checks that are supposed to be coming to businesses are not going into the hands of black businesses. They're just not. They're not going into the hands of brown businesses. We're getting left out of the bailout. It's a huge story. Another one, black rural communities. We talk about rural America. We know that there is a white rural America, but our rural communities are being starved. They're being starved of health care, but they're also being starved of the financial benefits of, uh, that are trying to repair from this COVID-19 bailout. The whole bailout situation is skipping tons and tons and tons of our people. And so get, and and here's the challenge, um, Amanda, how do we do that story? We can't even get reporters out. We can't send a reporter out to rural America. So we're trying to resource local news to try to drag those stories in, because it's very hard to even do reporting. Because of COVID-19. Because of COVID. And I'll give you one more story that, This is one that I've actually caught, has caused me nightmares. Remember when, when I went to Tornillo and we um, did the stories about the little kids that are being incarcerated um, because they've come over the border alone because they're so desperate. The moms are so desperate. They're sending their kids by themselves to get them out of war torn countries where gangs are basically armies now. Yes. Um, And so though we don't, we still to this day don't know. And I have a contact that I talk to on a regular basis we don't know to this day how many of those kids are still locked in cages. No. We know those cages are small. We know that the kids are bunched up together. Yes. We know that disease spreads in bunched up environments. And we don't know if there is no vaccine. We don't know if they're even being treated. There have been all these flu deaths Right? There were all the, remember all the flu deaths that were happening early, early, early on in this, this is before COVID 19. And we just heard about all these kids dying of the flu at 20 and 14. I now want to, would love to go backwards and start to look at those deaths later in the year. Um, and the same with the incarcerated population. We are right. overrepresenting in people in prison. Those are breeding grounds for germs, breeding grounds for viruses. We have no idea. There was a hunger strike in Florida about two weeks ago where prisoners in, initiated a hunger strike because they're so scared of dying from COVID 19. And these are people who haven't even been tried yet. So they haven't been convicted of anything, right. they they're just been... in jail. They're not a convicted, yeah. but they're trapped in a, in a Petri dish. It's like a cruise ship, except you're locked in. Yes.
0: How do you stay sane? (sighs) See, I don't have my cocktail with me right now. (laughs) You know, because I honestly, it's like, and when I say sane, what I also mean is, okay, so you know, like when you're really sick and you, you're like, I will do anything to not be sick, and someone could tell you like, okay, yeah, this is what you need to do: <laughs> put that Bailey's and then mix, put put five cashew, five, not four, five cashew, <laughs> take a frog. Like you'll, you're like whatever, like give me whatever remedy. <laughs> I feel like that is kind of how conspiracy theories are working now, where yeah. like they're kind of like they're like serving as this like crazy remedy for a lot of people to like try and help them make it make sense. Yeah. And as a journalist, I feel like it's it's like this weird balance of like in this particular scenario, none of this makes sense. Yeah. So how do you stay sane on a line of just reporting what's being told, even though it's like, I don't I don't know that this thing being told is even what it is, and not feeling compelled to even bring into the conversation the possibility of this
1: other thing that might be some hotep science. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it's true. But I mean, I'll tell you one uh, remedy that because my godmother's Jamaican. So my mom's best friend from NYU is Jamaican. So, you know, she is like badgering me to make chicken soup and caramel porridge. She swears caramel porridge can cure everything. And I need to have that because of her. I went out and bought two whole big things of white rum. <laughs> but like the, the Jamaican right, white rum. And I have them just sitting there in stores. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to use these for, but she seems to think I need this and I need to make ginger. You have to make ginger tea, but not the, you have not the one in the box. You have to boil no. it. You have to beat boil it. Boil the ginger. Beat, boil it, beat it. And you have to boil So I'm all that stuff. But I will do those things because listen, there's a reason why my godmother 86. <laughs> right, 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 right. She didn't get to 86 just by accident by, No, DayQuil didn't get her to 86. Robitussin didn't do that. No. That's not made, caused by Robitussin. So we, I do with some of the things. But yeah, as far as sanity is concerned, yes, we hear a lot of rumors and weird stuff in this business that you can't report, right? It's as bad as Trump ruminating. Well, I wonder if he drank bleach. Now, maybe he just ingested bleach or Lysol. Like, What do you think of that, Doc? He did that on TV. And so we have to debunk a lot of... I mean, like, we say on TV as much as we can, don't drink Lysol! Like, don't. (laughs) I mean, please don't! You know, I mean, we don't know how many people listen to this guy... So there's that part. But of there it were we people. There were 900 people that listened to Jim Jones. 100. And hey, they every time my mother in would Guyana. go out in <laughs> Guyana, and she would go out and that's that diver. But every time people say, "Oh, your accent is so lovely. Where are you from?" And she said Georgetown, Guyana. And they'd say, "Oh my God, are you from that place where all those people died?" Georgetown, not Jones. <laughs> those were Americans. Those were not Guyanese people. Those were not my people. Those were your people. She used to get <laughs> so pissed. Oh, my little five for three mother would lose her entire mind. If you try to say she was from Jonestown. <laughs> George, 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 the <laughs> <Like> King George, <laughs> she would get. Oh, you want to make that lady mad? That's how you do. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we we have to debunk a lot of bullshit uh, because yeah. Trump and his administration, everything they say is now qu- is questionable, obviously. But then you have people like Doctor Birx, who it's like, is she questionable now? Like does the scarf lady, can we trust the scarf lady? Like, I, I don't know. And then I, so I've, be, I've become like obsessed with this guy named Dr. Joseph Fair. He's become my guide, my, my guidestone for everything because he dealt with the, the Ebola crisis with the Obama administration. He was like, he lived in the Congo for 18 months fighting Ebola. And he tells you these harrowing stories about his whole team eventually being dead. And he was, he, he is something else. And so I, I, Book him a lot because I ask him is that real? Is that true? <laughs> you know, and so we do a lot of that, a lot of debunking. But as far as just sanity, I try to block out most of it. I have to tell you, I watch HGTV more at this point than I watch MSNBC. Wow. I just watch that, or I'll watch The Walking Dead when it was on, or I'll watch Westworld. You know, I watch like dystopian shows. <laughs> I
0: was know? gonna say, you just watching the world end <laughs> on another the show. Like, I want The world ends around you. <laughs> you're like, let me watch their world end.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm now watching The Handmaid's Tale for some reason. I, I Why are know. you doing that to yourself? Because you know
0: what? I, I want to be. Prepared. I watch my I, every week with The Handmaid's Tale. I will go on Instagram and be like, "All right, about to watch this week's episode and ruin my life." <laughs> yeah.
1: It's so true. It's like, I don't know why I dive into like the dark shows. It's somehow soothing in a weird way. Cause I feel like
0: all the way back to sixth grade. That was the the hostage crisis was the dark show that you were watching. hundred
1: percent. hundred percent. It's true. I think I just, I lean into this, the dystopia. So I do that. And I watch less and less of of our network. I do watch my primetime folks. Um, and then I think on top of that, um, this little thing, this little Zoom thing has become a real source of comfort because now you can do a little Zoom party, like you can chat with people on it. You know, you try to reach out to people more. It's made me reach out more to family, spend more time talking to, especially the older, the elders in the family. Um, and then just, I don't know, I just writing, trying to keep busy. You know, if I, if I sit still too long, I get anxious yeah. so I tend to be very type A and just keep doing something. And I Welcome. have really bad insomnia, <laughs> um, so I don't sleep very well. So I try to just keep busy, you know? The, if I'm busy, I'm not thinking too much.
0: Because you're in the space talking about this all the time, the escapism is necessary for your balance, right? Yeah. But I know a lot of Black folks who, they are like craving more information about how our community is being affected yes. and trying to figure out how to get a balance in even their news right yeah. like so do you have any suggestions on resources and in places where they can find that balance
1: yeah i would definitely say curate your tw- your twitter and this is not even just for now but it's more important now than ever curate your twitter because what's incoming to you is what's feeding your brain so i follow you know the major you know newspapers washington post the new york times detroit free press Miami Herald, you know, follow the big paper in every city. Very important to do, right? And then follow maybe the next biggest paper, you know, so I'll, you do the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. You just get a little bit of a balance. Um, I have a little bit of right-wing news in my feed just to know what they're saying so I can keep, an eye, keep a weather eye on them, but I don't put too much of that in there. And then individual reporters and journalists who you trust, follow your trusted people because you can take their word for it and they are not going to be wrong on purpose. They're not just going to say crazy bullshit to you um and so i think curate your twitter is a good time to go through and look can you your give following. us
0: three journalists then i know they... some people this is the starter kit yeah so it's it's like, like a you starter know because
1: kit. i can tell you
0: like i don't like i can tell you three rappers i trust you <laughs> know what i'm saying but <laughs> but in yeah. terms of journalists like i have the voices that i know that are my peers you know the mark yeah. hills the angela rise the bakari sellers etc yeah. in terms of the journalism space you know i think that's if you're not reading the news every day, you may not have a particular journalist. So like Charles Blow is a journalist that I, you know, Clinton. Aaron Haynes
1: is wonderful. She, that's our girl, but Aaron Haynes is brilliant. Philip Rucker um, is one of the best um, at just giving you the straight news with no crazy chaser, so I would do Philip Rucker at the New York Times. I do follow him. think like, He's also very smart. Um, I would say, who else is really good? I mean, I, I, I'm like you. I follow like Jason Johnson. <laughs> you know, I'm following like, people like that who get okay. me through to the news, and uh, Adam Serwer, who's also a wonderful journalist but also has some opinion and is like really bright and really gives you a- a good comprehensive view that's also racially sensitive and that was really sensitive to our issues and the things that we care about. Um, Jamel Bowie, who is also brilliant, smart. He's going to yes. give you news that's from our perspective where you can really understand it um, and he breaks it down really simple and so I think he is also very good um, you know I follow uh, for legal stuff I follow Ellie Mastal, who's that's my that's my lawyer friend and he got opinions and he's all <laughs> over the place but he's wonderful he's at the nation and he's really smart um, so I would start with those guys start with people that you trust but as far as like majority world journalists you know the New York Times I think Philip is the best guy there he's very good um, at Politico there are a couple people too I can actually put together a little list of people that I'll email to you um, yeah! that is a good little starter kit for following people on Twitter. I could definitely do that and I'll send that over to you. So
0: I have like three pillars that I basically live by at this point and I'm starting this social community, a membership only social community called SFB society, smart funny and black society that I want to serve as a space uh, for, for predominantly black folks, but allies will be allowed entry. It's always know your place. Uh, (laughs) but really for them to be their whole Black selves and for us to have a safe space for growth in a number of ways, right? So internally, intellectually, et cetera. And so three the three pillars that we exist on is like health and holistic concepts, mm-hmm. humorous content, and honest conversation. So I wanted to get from you, like where do each of these things play a role in your life? How, where does health, how does health play out as a focus for you?
1: Yeah, so this is, this is a challenging one, girl. This one's a little bit of a challenge. I, I... You know, I, my mom had a had a great friend um named Rita Lejeune Bradford. And Miss Lejeune, she used to have a saying, Why walk when you can sit? Why what did she say? <laughs> she would say, Why walk when you can sit? Why, why, why stand, you know, when you can repose? Like her thing was like, just sit down and Relax. you'll be fine. <laughs> Relax. What are you doing? Um, so I, I've never been a fan of the whole exercise thing. But because we are stuck at home and stuck at home near the fridge with the fridge, like right out there, um, I have had to get health back into my life. I'm trying to lose, you know, lose that COVID-19. I don't want that COVID-19 weight. So I'm like, let me try to lose some of it. So I have started exercising again. I'm doing this iFit trainer. Uh, My husband bought this iFit trainer where you run on it and there's a movie in front of you that makes it look like you're in another country. It's amazing. Ooh. Like I've been running. Yeah, I've been running in Easter Island for the last couple of weeks. It's amazing. You have a trainer that's like, hi, I'm in Easter Island. And so are you. Let's jog. And I'm like, this is great. So I, yeah, So it's been amazing. So it's like travel running. So I'm doing that. And he also bought me a boxing machine. I'm, I love boxing. Um, I was a, I'm a Muhammad Ali lifetime OG super fan. My mother was too. And so I love boxing. So he bought me this boxing thing where I could punch the hell out of it. I can just punch it. Punch it. It's, it's it. like a
0: like because I got I got a like boxing. I I got a punching bag from Amazon.
1: Yes, that you put water in the base and you just and you could just hit it. Well, this guy, it's like he's got it's got a head in the middle. It's got two arms that are out like this, and it's got a space for you to kick it in the balls. It's
0: Ooh. like a little man, and you
1: could you could just imagine it's anybody. And just punch ah! it. Just go crazy and punch it. So I do try to get a little exercise in three days a week. I'm down in the basement in the gym um, trying to get myself together. So health is important. But, you know, for me personally, I've also had a huge health scare last year. I got whooping cough, which is crazy. Um, So I experienced that sort of respiratory distress thing that you really don't really want to experience. Um, Ended up in the hospital Um, And it really did reset my kind of thinking about my own health and so taking it a lot more seriously. So I am trying to get myself together, you know, health-wise and sort of make, you know, make myself more, I don't know, I guess make it more of a focus. It's had to be, you know. Well, and
0: mental health too, you know, like I think for Black women, our mental health has had to become a focus just by nature of like, if one more person says like, you're a strong Black woman, (laughs) I'm like...
1: (laughs) Put them on the punching bag, girl. Put them on the bag. It's true. Because, yeah, and mental health, it's funny because my sister is much better at this than I am. I've never been good about like seeking help from mental health. So I I have to get better about that. I have finally decided this is the year I'm going to go into therapy because I think it's important for those of us who spend a lot of time channeling bad news and channeling pain and and just putting it out there all the time and sort of doing that for other people. We don't do it for ourselves, it sticks to you, it really does. So, this is the first year I'm going to try to do it. So, I'll keep you posted. We'll see how this works. But out. I think that's also a cultural thing, too. You know, yeah. just
0: as West Indian women, it's kind of like, well, I, you know, that is a thing that they just do, but I ain't really into that. that ain't. And, you know, it's like, I'm not telling all my family thing. And right. you know, stay in the house. That's exactly it's,
1: right. That's it's right.
0: like, you know, you got to find, and you got to find a therapist that's culturally competent. Yes, you and do. And I've found that it's also beyond just, having a therapist like there's so many I'm really on this kick about like making yourself
1: your passion project yes and absolutely and don't you have you ever ways. been to one I did I went to one one time who I'm talking to the lady and this is one of those and uh, you, you you will relate to this uh, more than maybe other folks will relate to it and at a certain point in this conversation she says you know you know we got to make sure that you're okay because you know we really need you to stay sane your show is really great and at that point I completely mentally disconnected I was like I don't want to I get, I get out of here Is she going to lock the door? (laughs) I I want somebody who's never watched TV. I want somebody who's never seen MSNBC. So find me that person who lives in a cave. I was like that for
0: a while. But then it became where their knowledge of me being on TV became a necessary shorthand for talking about... The difficulties I was having based on yeah, it's true. being on TV. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and so, yeah. like to me, I have had that where I go into a gynecologist's office and the oh, person is like, ma'am, ma'am. I love you. I'm like, well, I can't my pussy can't be here no more. I gotta take my pussy elsewhere. <laughs> elsewhere. I don't, you gonna sell my pussy information, my right. pussy profile. To I'm TNZ. already in the
1: stirrups. I'm here. I'll be vulnerable. And then you wanna tell you you love my show?
0: What? Listen, it's literally like, what? Like, I can't, I can't. So that, that I don't have any tolerance for. Like, and they'll look at you crazy when you're like, this is, girl, I had a PA come in and I was like, I'd like to see my actual physician. And she was like, oh, okay. I had been waiting months to see my physician. So my physician came in later that day, I got a DM from the PA saying, Today was my worst day at work in my entire career. I am so upset that you would not allow me to care for you. You need to do research on the specifics between the physician's assistant and your physician and understand that we're people, too. I was livid. And the <laughs> office was just like, well, we have to do an investigation. I'm like, what <laughs> investigation do you have to do? I just sent you screenshots of this person violating HIPAA. But you know, it's like so stuff like that. It's like it makes you very tenuous about healthcare. It makes you feel. It makes you feel like you don't have a safe space. And even if you're not famous by any means, so many people feel violated. Right.
1: Exactly. Just showing
0: up to say something's wrong.
1: Exactly. That you're like your whole life is being judged, and then and then you wonder. If this person doesn't like my show, like I have that worry too, right? Like if this is a person that's the other side, I mean, is it safe to go? I don't know who this person is. I mean, remember Very back real. during, after President Obama got elected and um, the Affordable Care Act was passed, there were doctors in Florida who were posting signs on their windows saying, if you vote for Obama, don't come here for care. So there was a Why is whole- my
0: state always like this? Girl, yeah. Florida,
1: that's a whole nother podcast if you want to talk Florida. Florida. Mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Okay. Okay.
0: Second. <laughs> Where? Cause I don't mm-mm. even want to go down that road. Yeah. Where does humor mm-mm. live in the life? <laughs> Of Joy Reid,
1: I, I have to tell you one of the things about uh, the AM Joy show that is—it is it, it's probably because it's just I'm a wacky ass person—is that the show has a certain wacky content, a certain wacky quality to it. Because yes, we're giving you bad news. Okay, we know the news is terrible. Everything I'm gonna tell you is bad. I, don't, I have nothing good to tell you except who won <laughs> the week. Who won the week is what we put in there because we're like, this shit is horrible. Yeah. We got to put something positive in this shit, but it can't be corny. So we did—we made up who won the week because we were like, this is depressing. Like we're killing ourselves yes. with this show. So it's bad news. So we. Try to keep the show having to to. It's probably because I'm who I am, and on this show more than any show I've ever done, other than my radio show, I'm just me. I'm just me reading you the news. I'm not like portraying like a news person at all. Right, right. Okay. I, I, I'm and I'm not a trained anchor person. I'm more a pundit who's now an anchor who's giving you the news. So there is a certain. So humor is so necessary for us. To keep our set to keep our audience sane so that you could take in this information and know it's coming from a friend. It's coming from, you know, I'm just your homegirl that's giving you the news. As far as for me, comedy, I need it, you know, just watching and enjoying and being able to laugh. Girl, I live on YouTube's glitter crazy and like crazy TikToks and crazy stuff that's on Instagram. I'll be sitting here laughing to myself like I'm an insane person because I actually need that. I need to laugh to be to survive. We need this, right? We as whole people, we, we need yes. this. We don't just need darkness. You need that light too. Well, lastly, honesty. How does honesty play into how you live your life? It's very important. I mean, here's the reality. Um, I can't make the world better than it is. Um, I can't make relationships better than they are. I can't make the reality of child rearing better than it is. I have a good friend that's also my, um, social media director. She's like, you give the most honest relationship of child raising advice ever because people are like, aren't babies wonderful? Like, yeah, until they stink. Wait till they turn 13 and their whole body stink. They go stick your whole house up. You go smell it. It's going to stink. And they're like, what? Like I give you like the <laughs> bad news, you know, because like nobody told me breastfeeding hurts breastfeeding, it's painful. Like those yeah. things, people I want people to be honest with folks. You gotta tell people the real because people will accept bad news if you're always giving them honest news, right? If people can accept the horrors that we're giving you if they know that we're always going to be honest. And so, you know, if I fuck up, I'll tell you on the show. If, you know, I'm wrong, I'll tell you on the show. You're sort of, I'm sort of open, an open book on the show. You know, as to my, the highs and the lows. You get it all. Because at least you know I ain't going to lie to (laughs) you. The last door
0: well, I appreciate everything you have brought to us today, you know, your energy, your your information. like it just thinks that it just feels like so many of us are constantly inundated with personalities and influencers yeah. who may have a lot to say, but are lacking education, are lacking really really grounded insight, you know, and it's it's so refreshing on a regular basis. To, which is why it's so important, like you said, to curate your feed. It's yes. so refreshing to be able to see you speaking in your truth and you know, having a platform to do that. Because I feel like you're speaking for me and you're speaking to me. And we just... So often don't get to see ourselves in who
1: is speaking. So yeah. thank you. Well, I um, appreciate it, and I'm saying, and I'm going to rep- put that right back to you, girl. Because I'm telling you, uh, you have no idea, um, especially for like uh, my like, younger viewers and younger folks that watch. You truly are our avatar. You are out there representing for how li- you could literally be in my family because I look, I'm like, yo, that's how I feel too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, it's really just, there's a courageousness that when you do what you do, makes me feel comfortable doing what I do. So I'm glad that I can give that back and that synergy can be there and, yes. and have that exchange. Please let people know when they can watch AM
1: Joy. Yes, yeah, so you can check it out uh, Saturdays and Sundays, 10 a.m. Eastern to noon or 1130 whenever Andrew Cuomo decides he won't talk and mess up my show so, exactly from 10 a.m. until Andrew Cuomo decides he feels like coming out and saying a few things about his family dinners or whatever he does. But uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at joy Ann Reed. You can follow me on everything. I've, I just made everything joy Ann Reed, So I'm very easy to find joy Ann Reed on Twitter joy Ann Reed on Instagram. The only one that's different is joy Reed official on Facebook. And of course yeah. the AM joy, everything is also a.m. Joy. So you can find me in all of those places. And whenever I'm writing a book, I'll tell you about it. Because I'm also uh, honest about how to sell them books, so you can read all my books. You can find those uh, on my page, my my website, which is JoyRead.com. She got
0: books, y'all. <laughs> she got books. Not she got a children book.
1: that need to get college paid for. It, so
0: buy, <laughs> buy the books. Buy the books. Well, thank you for not going by the book and actually <laughs> keeping it a hundred with us today. We appreciate you and everybody who is listening. You know what to do. Listen to what she said. Follow the instructions that I will be sharing with you all on curating your feed so that we, as specifically the Black folks, and not just Black folks, anybody who cares about the world and not just the very specific sliver that seems to get addressed, especially when it's coming to this COVID-19, but in particular, Black folks in COVID-19, if you want to make sure that you are educated and up to date and, and able to be in the conversation, not just so that you know, but this, so that you can take action. Because you talk so much about making sure that we're voting, making sure that we are calling the people who are speaking on your our behalf that we have elected into these positions, making sure that we're also using our own resources. And if we don't know how we're adversely being affected, we won't know which of our resources we need to employ. I think it's very important to note that they decided they needed to make a specific hotline for Asian-based racism. That is not. And people are like, what? How is that? Because their community, they have managed to make it mean something to them. They have managed to say, listen, our community is valuable to you and here's why. And so they feel compelled to have to at least look like they're trying to protect that community. And even though as black folks, I always say like, we are not a monolith. For some reason, people say things like, we need to market to Black America. And I'm like, that's not a thing. Like, we have tribes in America. Like, you need to market to different value groups. And there's going to be Black folks that are in those. And some of those are going to be specific cultural groups within Blackness. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that as a community, if we can get our different tribes to at least agree on one thing, which is that we're valuable we can make change. So thank you for, again, being yourself. We appreciate having you on the show. And make sure to watch Joy Ann Reed on AM Joy.
1: Thank you, sister. I appreciate you, Amanda. Thank you. This has been so much fun.
0: Thank you. Oh, and also make sure to put up a recipe for pepper pot.
1: Put up a recipe. You know what? I can make pepper pot, but I can make a up shot roti. Bus up yes! roti. I can do that. Yeah, that I can do. <laughs> Let me tell you. Joanne told me she learned how to make a roti skin. I said, oh, God. I can make a roti skin, and I can do the curry. I can do the roti skin. I can do both of those things. Yeah, And my rice yes. and Yes. Perfection. <laughs> yes. And I know
0: you can do it. I know there's times where you're watching where Cuomo interrupts. you like, this mother scunt.
1: I know. <laughs> He has no behavior. He has no behavior interrupting my show. Mm -mm. No behavior. (laughs) Mother skunk. (laughs) A podcast network.